There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. Lover's Lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Instrumental rock may conjure images of Yanni to some people, but Pelican's instrumental rock will destroy any such comparison. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. The hard-hitting metal band Pelican joins us in the studio. Then Greg and I review the new album from Craig Finn and The Hold Steady. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, we are really excited to showcase Pelican today. I think one of the most innovative bands on the metal scene today. And I have to say, you know, this is public radio, right? It's a rather staid place. I don't think I've ever (laughs) seen people in such a panic running for the doors to get out of here because of the volume than when we had them in here. Short of an earthquake, uh, you've got that Pelican roof rumble. I mean, that's a sound you need to hear and feel. But before we talk to Pelican, we've got some music news. That is Your Love from Jamie Principal, a track produced by Frankie Knuckles, who died a few days ago at the age of 59, the godfather of Chicago house music. Now, what does that mean? 1977, Frankie Knuckles was the first DJ at a club called The Warehouse on the south side of Chicago. That's where house gets its name. Frankie was the DJ, Warehouse was the venue, Mm -hmm. and this is where a music, a style of music was born. In fact, I think you could make the case, Jim, plausibly, that Knuckles was as important to the birth of contemporary dance music as James Brown was to soul or Chuck Berry was to rock and roll. Or craft work to electronic music. Exactly. You can trace the line back to what Knuckles was doing in that little club. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the Ramones playing London in Mm. the 70s. All these bands show up to see the Ramones, the Clash, and the Sex Pistols walk out of there. Yeah. We know what we have to do now. Frankie Knuckles was an expert at not only cultivating a taste and an aesthetic around the music. He was also one of those guys that created sort of an island of misfit toys. You know, Mm. the misfits and the outsiders are welcome here. This is where gay African-American and Hispanic people could gather in sort of an oasis, a safe haven on that dance floor. And the fact that it became a mainstream thing a decade later was as surprising to Knuckles as anybody. You and I talked to him at the Museum of Contemporary Art in 2012, and here's what he had to say. I don't look at music as a competitive sport, especially being a DJ. I've never looked at it as being a competitive sport, even though you may have people on the dance floor and people that come out that say, well, you know, this DJ is better than that one, and I like this one better than that one. You know, I've never looked at it that way, and I've never let that influence me, you know what I mean, because I'm too busy having a good time and showing people a good time. 
That's Frankie Knuckles at the Museum of Contemporary Art in 2012. Greg, we, we both felt lucky to be sitting on either side of the man on stage talking to him seriously in such a prestigious venue about his music, celebrating his legacy. And there was something huggable about Frankie. You just always wanted to hug him. He, he was a great... Generous man. A generous man. A sense of community is what he believed in and fostered. Electronic dance music today has become corporatized and it's become so commercialized. This was a about community, these misfits, as you said, coming together, all celebrating, and there was a, a, that sense of transcendence that he tried to create, this feeling of everybody coming together on the dance floor. I think that's really important to remember, and that's what draws the connection from the earliest disco on places like Fire Island in Manhattan, where it was an underground black, Latino, and gay music. Then it becomes commercialized, you have the Bee Gees, and then these guys in Chicago say, we're going to make disco. We're going to add a few things that are very right. Chicago-like, the church, mm-hmm. the gospel, right? And we're just going to call it something different since since they're burning disco records in stadiums and such now. Disco got a bad rap. And then that takes us to the future. It really paves the way for the next 30 years. Well, absolutely. And the fact that he was working with those pioneering Chicago house artists like Jamie Principal and Robert Owens really getting their career off the ground. He later on became uh, very famous for his remix work. I mean, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Depeche Mode called Bunch of Grammys him. to his credit. And even as recently as 2008, he was on the charts. He did a fantastic remix of a track by Hercules and Love Affairs Blind. Here's Frankie Knuckles' remix of that song on Sound Opinions. That's Hercules and Love Affairs Blind, remixed by Frankie Knuckles, dead at the age of 59. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song Deny the Absolute from the newest album by our guest this week, Pelican. The band is Trevor DeBrow. Brian and Larry Herwig and Dallas Thomas, and they put out that 2013 release, Forever Becoming, after a four-year hiatus and a split with band founder Laurent Schroeder-Lebeck. Pelican, as you'll soon hear, is an instrumental band whose metal influences and epic live shows have won them legions of fans all over the world. 
quite a growth since forming in the Chicago suburbs in 2001. And it's even more impressive if you consider how the band defies labels. Post-metal, grindcore, heavy metal, you name it, they've been called it. And when the current members of Pelican joined Greg and me in our studio, I began by asking lead guitarist Trevor DeBrow about why they decided to start the band. I think it all started, like many things in our bands, semi-accidentally. Larry and our founding guitarist Laurent and myself were playing in a grindcore band called Tusk. In that band, I played guitar, Laurent played bass, but by nature, Laurent was a guitarist. So he started writing some songs, and they were too far outside of the stylistic frame of uh, Tusk to really work. So we just decided to you know, start a second band which when you're in your early 20s, you have the energy to do. <laughs> Why the heck not? But Trevor, before we go any further, what is a grindcore band? Uh, <laughs> We're going to have to define our terms all along the way. Yeah, I suppose so. Grindcore, uh, you know, it's uh, a subgenre of hardcore punk and death metal that originated in England in the mid-80s that was all about pushing the tempos and the uh, brutality to the extremes. By the time we were doing a grindcore band in 1998, obviously it was you know more than 10 years into the the history of grindcore. So I don't think that we were very traditionalist about it. We were pretty avant garde. But does, um, does that make you post grindcore? Yeah, <laughs> that's where the po- that's where all the post tags attributed to Pelican begin is with Tusk. Sure, we were post grind. <laughs> it is kind of self explanatory. If you call a sound grindcore, you're not going to think it involves flutes and and mandolin and. Uh, and but, God but, help us, ukulele. But that's where we were post-grindcore, is we did, in fact, have mandolin on one of our records and banjo. But, you know, these were uh, sub-elements, you know, uh, mm-hmm. co- colorations to the sound. Uh, primarily, it was, yeah, brutal, hardcore-style music. So anyhow, uh, Laurent started writing songs that didn't really fit that that template. And uh, so we started, he and Larry started jamming one day and wrote uh, what ended up being our first song, Mammoth. You know, they asked me to to try and play some stuff on it and then i did and then uh you know brian lived there because we were practicing at the herweg house <laughs> and so he right. jo- joined uh, in on bass and then from there it just sort of took off you cannot skip over that part because <laughs> as i recall it was not just the her it wasn't like brian and larry owned a house this was your mom and dad's house that's, right yeah that's in, correct. in in suburban chicago northwest yeah. suburban chicago yep. yeah yeah and, and as i recall there was some damage to the house after you guys got done <laughs> practicing uh yeah there's cracks all along the ceiling because it was an upstairs room, so if you're in the room below, directly below, there's just fractures all along the ceiling where the drums sat and like where we had all the amps. Wow. Are you, did, you, did you have to fix that, Larry, for your mom and dad? Um, probably should have, but I didn't know. <laughs> I, my, dad, my dad's pretty handy, though. I think he took care of it over the years. Amazingly tolerant parents. I mean, and, and you guys were playing at famously extreme volume levels even then right yeah well that's that's really where it all started for us i think there was like a physicality that we were trying to uh evoke with our music from the start because at the beginning it was very minimalist music with very few chord changes very it was more about a physical sensation than like songs necessarily yeah why don't we why don't we hear some pelican before we we talk more what are you going to play uh we were going to play a tune from our new record called the cliff Thank you. 
That's the cliff from Pelican on Sound Opinions. Uh, Trevor DeBrow on guitar, Brian Herwig on bass, Larry Herwig on drums, and Dallas Thomas on guitar. So instrumental music, people who are unfamiliar with you now know, hey, where's the vocals? There have never been any vocals on a Pelican record. Now, what happened there early on? Was it sort of a decided immediately, we're, not, we're just going to be an instrumental group, or did it become that by happenstance? Pretty much happenstance. We were playing for a full year before we did our first show. And over the course of that year, you know, we intended at some point to find somebody to sing, but it just never happened. And then we got a show offer and we decided to just see how it how it flew. <laughs> Sorry, no pun intended. <laughs> Without a singer. And it just seemed to go over really well. You know, we didn't really look back from that point. I've seen a great quote from you, Brian, about that. If we had, you know, some skinny guy up front, they'd say we were an emo band. If we had some big burly guy up front, they'd say we were a metal band. Right. Yeah, no, that's totally true. Yeah, I mean, that that was kind of what we, I think what eventually happened after we figured it out. Like, all these people started, different types of people were into the music, it seemed, that were coming up and telling us that, oh, it's so heavy and it's awesome, and but you don't have some dude screaming in your face and stuff so it's more it was more enjoyable i guess for some people so mm. it didn't pigeonhole us either yeah, yeah it just mm-hmm. allowed us to kind of float 
genres. You know, we could. I remember like years ago, even the early stages, like we started playing with like ISIS and High and Fire, and then like a couple years later, we were playing with like Cursive, and it and it still worked. You know, it was like, I think not having that vocalist like just allowed us to kind of blend into these other scenes. Yeah, I mean, and that does sort of clear the slate in terms of just allowing people different ways to get into the band. Uh, of course, it also makes it a little more difficult to like. Not that you ever thought about this way, because I know you guys came from more of the punk scene in Chicago, but you know the whole idea of categorizing, selling, marketing yourself. What are you exactly? You know, where do you fit in? People always want to know where a band fits in. You know, when they're booking it or or slotting it on their radio station, very few pl- people are open minded enough to accept a band on its own terms. But that didn't sound like it was ever a concern. Not really, no. I mean, we just made the music and played whatever shows we could get, and it seemed to all just fall into place, you know. I I don't think any of us expected any of the successes that came to us, and, you know, we've toured all over the world, and, uh, yeah, it's all just really fortunate. You know, you can catch up on all our interviews and watch videos of all the artists we have on the show. Check them out at soundopinions.org. Coming up, more with Pelican. Then Jim and I are going to review the new album from The Hold Steady. That's up next on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the song Last Day of Winter by our guest this week, the heavy instrumental rock band Pelican. Now, Jim, you and I know this, but for our listeners who haven't seen Pelican live, it is an experience you would not soon forget. Very visceral, very loud, rumbling the sternum (laughs) in your body. You feel it. Yes, you do feel the music. Here's guitarist Dallas Thomas and bassist Brian Herwig on that extreme volume. You want to feel it. I know it seems crazy. You crank up, put earplugs in, but you want to feel the rumble. Mm-hmm. Like you want to feel something. So that's the point of cranking. I don't look it up. at it as pain either. I look at it as 
enjoyment. Like I, <laughs> I love to be rumbled by music. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, well, you could say to people, right? You know, why go on that crazy roller coaster that drops you down? You know, six stories in two seconds. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Exactly. It is a physical experience, yeah. and I think it takes you out of yourself in a way it it like kind of reduces your self-consciousness and it makes it more of a more of a communal experience with the band if you're in the audience and it's really really loud because it just sort of like creates this trance sort of state in a way yeah and it it it, i don't know it just penetrates you in a different way both um, both physically and mentally you know we've got pelican here at sound opinions uh how about another song guys sure uh how about the tundra
The Tundra by Pelican from album number five, Forever Becoming, on Sound Opinions. Brian, to what extent are the song titles intended to help us? Because I, I, I contend that your music is very cinematic. I mean, we, you can see movies in your... It might, might not be the same movie you're seeing, but when I listen to some of the tunes, you know, you, you, you're being taken on a journey like that song we just heard so so when you you, are you guys just like picking out cool sounding words or are you thinking about the titles of the instrumentals we think about it but i feel like they always come towards the end of the process after we've after we've got the songs together and especially when the record is actually coming together all the songs are done and we're starting to think about what artwork and concepts and stuff like that Okay. Well, what about, uh, Trevor, the song we just heard, Tundra? You know, it, it, it's got that kind of frosty ambience through much of it, you know, slow, huge, empty expanses. And then at the end, something happens. It's like the woolly mammoth, like, coming stomping through. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, the tempo changes and you get that hard-hitting part, you know? Uh, I think we prefer if the imagery is left uh, to the listener to kind of decide. <laughs> so if that's what you heard, that's absolutely correct. That's good. Okay. All right. Well, I think we can have a Sound Opinions contest, throw it out to the listeners, and say what happened at the end of Pelicans, the Tundra. See, when you don't have any lyrics, you can make up your own story, yeah. and that's going to be yeah, totally. way cooler than anybody else's story. Right? I saw I think, the woolly mammoth, but yeah. I had some weird seeds at lunch. But I, <laughs> I think that's part of the appeal of instrumental music is that I really – gives something back to the listener like the listener is able to kind of craft their own experience with it yeah you guys have been doing this for a long time this is the fifth studio record more than a decade together very tight-knit group i mean four guys that had been together for a, a long time dallas is now in the group and i know he played with you for a couple of years before joining for this record but uh you had mentioned laurent lebeck earlier founding member of the band trevor you and laurent were the the main kind of the core, I, as I understand it, coming up with the music in the early part of the, the, the group. How did the relationship change now that Laurent is no longer part of the band? Well, the songwriting fell more on myself and Brian. And I think part of the thing that's interesting, I think, about this record versus the other records is, you know, a lot of the songs, uh, when they would originate for the older material, we've always had kind of this method of working on songs where it, we start with two people, like one person has a song, and then they meet up with another person in the band and kind of flesh out the structure and the arrangements and stuff like that. And then when it's at a, a good point, bring it to the rest of the band. And we've met in every configuration of two people imaginable, uh, myself and Larry, Brian and Larry, uh, myself and Laurent, Brian and Laurent. But for whatever reason, over the course of 10 years, Brian and I had never worked together at the early stage of writing songs. We always were, like when a song would come together, when we would meet up, it would be like when the full band met up. So it kind of just reconfigured the whole method of writing because Brian and I had to kind of learn how to become a songwriting partnership. So I think there was like a cool excitement there because it was kind of like, even though we've been doing this for a really long time, there was like this new creative energy that we hadn't really tapped into before. We started on acoustics in your basement. Yep. <laughs> Just really? So, yeah, for this record, yeah. Was... Is that even allowed? <laughs> that's how, that's yeah. how so many Pelican songs start, actually. And that's, I think that's what really broke us away from the early days when it was all heavy, all distortion, is that Laurent and I used to write. We used to live together and we would write on acoustic guitars. Mm -hmm. And so we were writing these really broad, intricate uh, chord patterns that had you know, a lot of uh, melodic range in them that maybe would get lost if you were trying to write on, you know, a distorted guitar cranked all the way up. 
so that's always been a part of our writing process, and that's why there's, I think, a little bit more breadth and depth to, to what we're doing. It seems to me, too, that you guys have moved beyond. I think the, the earlier stuff was quite a bit darker in terms of just its tone, and it seems like the, the sound is more expansive in terms of maybe just the, just the chords. You know, Instead of minor chords, we got more major chords, or maybe that's just my ears playing tricks on me, but it seems a little bit more expansive and a little bit you know, more welcoming as opposed to oppressive and you know hammering you know and is that is that just an, a shift in personal attitude did this new songwriting partnership have anything to do with that or how did that evolve we're just older and <laughs> <laughs> we're not we're not as angry as we were when we were young mm-hmm. um no I, I think we're just like more relaxed people and what comes out of us sounds more open and relaxing as as a result i think did you feel like the band was in jeopardy when Lawrence? Uh, basically left i think leading up to that we felt like it was in jeopardy you know we stopped touring at the end of 2009 it was a conscious decision to stop being a full-time band and and not to you know tour and we tried to make a transition into having normal lives again and you know there was a varying degree of reluctance to get back into it on all of our behalves and laurent had the most reluctance um because he just didn't feel inspired to do music the same way the rest of us did. So, um, yeah, I mean, there was definitely some some time in there where it wasn't clear what was going to happen. How did that change? Well, in 2011, the three of us, uh, Larry, Brian, and myself, wanted to start doing some more dates, uh, start playing out again. And, you know, we proposed it to Laurent, and he wasn't into it, but he suggested going out with a fill-in guitarist, which we decided we were open to, and we, we asked our friend Dallas Thomas. He picked up the songs really quickly, and uh, we did two weeks and it all felt really good and then at the end of that year we recorded a new ep uh which was comprised of two holdover songs from the last album and then uh in the course of working on those songs brian and myself we started writing new material you know laurent was on the ep with us when we recorded in late 2011 and you know brian and i meeting up for that and and writing really you know it reignited the creative fires so we, we talked about doing a new record, and that was kind of the point where Laurent was expressed disinterest in even, in even writing anymore. Well, I think it's always interesting to talk to a band at a position like you guys, right? You know, people, I mean, you have fans, you have a following, you're on album number five, you've played all over the world, but it's not your day job for any of you, right? Right. Why don't we throw this to Larry? So, so you know, I mean, at some point, it gets tiring as a drummer, right? Yep. You carry that damn bass drum one time. You know, it's like, man, I'm I got I'm sitting here so rubbing much. my back as you're saying that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it gets old and yeah. muscles you didn't even know you had start to ache. Oh, yeah. and so how do you guys keep the fire going after 13 years? I mean, yes, there is the fact that you have new music coming. That's exciting. But then the rest of it. It's just in our blood at this point, you know. It's like we took that time off and then we all just felt... That we had that creative spark and drive again and just keeping the band going it's like we worked so hard to get to this point you know i i personally felt like it would would have been really silly to let it go um as far as the touring part i mean now it's like we don't do it as much and yeah because we're older and we have families and our backs suck <laughs> uh, I mean, but it's a it's a you know for me personally it's a maintenance thing now it's i have to see a chiropractor i have to see an acupuncturist i do yoga you know it's like mm. it's just you're just adapting to age and finding out what you need to do to keep making it work if it's important to you. And the band's obviously important to all of us, so we find our ways of making it work and, you know, the sacrifices we make with our jobs and with our our families and relationships, too. But 
Um, well, so then does it become that when you do tour, it's kind of like a vacation? Yes uh, and no. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It depends. There's ups and downs. <laughs> Dallas, There's yeah. a lot of downtime where you're like, uh, the downtime is the hardest part, mm. you know. And then, yeah, your aches, you're not eating right, you're not sleeping right. So there is a misconception. But, I mean, if everything lines up and you play a good show, that's what makes it all worth it. Yeah, like this last tour, it was like the first – right when we started, we all felt great. It was like Cleveland, D.C., the shows were sold out, the shows were packed. And, we, you know, we're just starting the tour, and we're all, like, on cloud nine. And then as we get to the, la- the latter part of the tour, and we're in, like, Birmingham, Baton Rouge, the, the shows are a little smaller, a little less energy. We're all kind of like, <laughs> yeah, we're all yeah. kind of like, wow, this is not fun anymore. But then we end in Austin at Fun, 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 and it's like the biggest show at tour, and it goes great, and then it's yeah. all makes it all worthwhile. So Yeah, I feel like tour is like life turned to 11 or something like that. It's like <laughs> everything that's good is amazing and everything that's bad is as horrible as it gets. <laughs> and I think that's part of the that's, so uh, true. that's part of the appeal of it is that it's like this very extreme experience and it it's much better taken in smaller doses like the the 10 day tour that we just did. I mean, mm-hmm. doing that for 6 weeks and at a time drives you completely crazy and and when we were doing it, you know, four to six months out of the year for the years that we were doing that. It was starting to take a real psychic toll on all of us. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. We're here with Pelican. Uh, You guys ready to play another song? Yeah. Sure. I think we're going to do Immutable Dusk.
Oh, that's great stuff. Immutable Dusk by Pelican, live on Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott. We were talking before about the names, but what about the songwriting process? You mentioned a band High on Fire. Of course, that's Matt Pike's band After Sleep. I remember interviewing him uh, when Jerusalem came out, <laughs> the best, heaviest, greatest album of all time. Right? All in agreement? <laughs> yes? Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fair. And they were in this uh, rehearsal space in the desert somewhere, and um, they had uh, floor-to-ceiling paper around the entire room, and they were writing out each measure of that incredible, what is it, 48-minute long or whatever. It's longer uh, than that. It's longer than that. Well, there's <laughs> several versions now, right? Yeah, right. And they keep getting longer. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Basically an hour of music, yeah. and they had plotted out every measure of it. How much thought goes into Because I think people just say, instrumental band, they jam. And it becomes a song. No. But we know it's not that simple. It's we, not a jam. We had charts on the new record. Yeah, and all of the riffs have silly names. Mm. So <laughs> it's always just a list of silly names with, with uh, the number of times next to it. Yeah. Give us an example. What's a silly name for a riff? I wish I remembered. Some We've th- probably had a high on fire yeah, riff. A high on fire <laughs> riff. Yeah, probably high on fire riff. High on fire Yeah, you know, and it just... It's just easy ways of remembering where we are. Like, oh, that's like the cave-in sounding part. Or, or you know. that's the motorcycle rock part. You know, <laughs> that kind of silly stuff. So these are unconventional chords that you're talking about. It's not like standard standard chords. Uh, yeah, I mean, with the exception of Dallas, I don't think any of us know what we're doing. <laughs> we, don't, we didn't study music theory. We didn't take lessons. We don't really, yeah, we have no idea what we're doing. But, but, but Immutable Dusk is exactly seven minutes and one second long on album. Right. Yeah. The, how how do you know that this is a, a three and a half minute uh, instrumental versus a, a, a fifteen minute instrumental? How do you settle on seven minutes? I think the songs just tell us where they want to go, and then we know when it's done. <laughs> mm. I feel like each song, you know, like you were saying, when when you listen to it, you have like a cinematic journey going on in your head. I think all of them, all of the songs, kind of represent like a. There's not like a specific narrative to them, but there's kind of a musical narrative, and we just take, we follow the song where it wants to go, mm. and it just happens that songs like Immutable Dusk have a seven-minute path <laughs> that they're following. It's been our pleasure to have uh, Trevor, Brian, Larry, and Dallas as our guests today. Pelican, thanks so much, guys. Thank, Thank you so you. much for having us. To watch video of our session with Pelican, visit soundopinions.org. And we want to invite you to share your sound opinions. How would you explain the many metal genres like grindcore, post-grindcore, and post-metal? And what bands are your favorites? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we review the new album from The Hold Steady.
Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a song called I Hope This Whole Thing Didn't Frighten You from Teeth Dreams, the sixth album from New York's Hold Steady. Greg, the band's been based in Brooklyn and associated with Brooklyn since about 2000, but they formed in Minneapolis. The lead vocalist, the songwriter, the true character, Craig Finn, got together with guitarist Tad Kubler. They moved east, put the band together, and began to build a devoted underground following for their kind of rootsy rock and literary bent, almost beat poetic at times, mm-hmm. Springsteenian, dare I say. We had them on the show in 2009. Before the release of the 2010 album, Heaven Is Whenever, they lost the keyboardist who'd been with them from the beginning, Franz Nikolai, possessor, I think, of the greatest handlebar mustache in rock history. (laughs) Finn put the band on hiatus for a while. He put out a solo album in 2012, and then he put the band back together. They went in the studio to record this sixth album. They were working with a producer, Nick Raskulnikas, who has worked with the Foo Fighters, Rush, and Evanescence. Let's hear a track from Teeth Dreams. This is called Big Sig by The Hold Steady on Sound Opinions. She says she always smokes cigarettes Ever since she was seven She always likes the big ones best You get more for your money And I know that she's gorgeous And I can't take her serious She looks kind of ridiculous With a Malibu 120s She's a scientist She puts me into experiments Squeezes hard and charts the forward progress Some nights she's a pharmacist She's got some pills in her purse One to wake you up One if you're nervous And I said my purpose Burns on her skirt and smoking her eyes I said my purpose It's dangerous the way she seeks validation Some night she's a magic trick Some night she's a sinking ship She pucks around with a paper clip She's a pistol at the party Watch me get started Burns on her skirt and smoke in her eyes I serve my purpose We power down the channel socialize I serve my purpose I serve my purpose She used to fool around with some friends 
That is Big Sig from The Hold Steady. The new album is called Teeth Dreams. Jim, you hinted at this. A little slicker sound. Yeah. Uh, And they've gotten slicker since their high point. Their third album, Boys and Girls in America 2006. There is an attempt here to get back to some of that original sound. I think the addition of new guitarist Steve Selvage with Tad Kubler has beefed up those guitars, and when they want to rock, as they do on that song Big Sig or in a few of the other tracks on this record, they do that very convincingly. It's the more experimental stuff that I think doesn't work. There's a track called Oaks that slogs on for nearly nine minutes, has this yeah. kind of gratuitous guitar solo tag Thankfully, on it's at the, the very end. end of the album. Yeah. feel like it drags just a bit as yeah. it's coming to a finish. Yeah. You know, I got to say, when Finn puts his mind to it, that guy creates a narrative like no one else. <laughs> He's got that noirish kind of movie cinema thing going on in here, and it's dark. In terms of Hold Steady Records, it has the darkest feel of any of them. And it's a good place for him because he's a good storyteller. And those guitars, when they sound big, they are ferocious. It's the last half of the record that doesn't really work for me, so it's a partial return to form for me. I'm going to have to give it a try it. Well, when you said, like, no one else, I, I stifled my laugh and didn't want to interrupt you. I mean, what do you mean, like, no one else? He's taking notes, part and parcel, from Jack Kerouac, Charles Bukowski, Jim Thompson, Raymond Chandler. <laughs> well, but and- it's a nice mix, right? <laughs> I mean, the guy's a well-read dude, you know? What can I tell you? But I, I, lo- I love yeah. the way he puts words together. Yeah, yes and no. Remember the problem we had with the song about being in a band with Jesus on his <laughs> solo album? You know, he sometimes goes so far over the top that you're wondering if it's parody, but it's not. I appreciate the Hold Steady better when they're live. You know, Craig Finn is a sort of lovable guy. Mm-hmm. When you see this guy who who looks like he should be an English professor at a community college fronting this band with the bombast of the Springsteen mm-hmm. big band behind him, and then he's telling these stories. I think it works very well live, but, but on record, you, you don't get the smirk and the joy from Finn. You know, I mean, we have to strain to hear it. When they're not on all four cylinders on album, I think it's, it's pretty dry. Dreadful. And I have to say, I think this is a trash it record. Ooh. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we have a real treat. One of the architects of disco, Giorgio Moroder, the guy behind all those Donna Summer records. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. Special thanks to Mary Gaffney and Andrew Gill. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Jake Smith. And we'll see you here next week. I love you. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Baby, will you call me the moment you get there? Baby, will you do that? Will you do that for me now? New messages. Hi, it's Chris, Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah, I was calling. You guys played that soundbite from Trent Reznor from a couple of years ago, riffing on Chris Cornell's solo album and trying to stir something up. It's like, you know, what's up with that? That's, that's kind of silly to do that. I mean, it just kind of came out of nowhere. Well, the song's from the same mind.
It comes from a couple of guys who had cheap trick in their studio and didn't have the stones to ask them about the drummer that's been missing since 2010. Whatever, guys. Bye. Hey, just listen to your program on the Allman Brothers. I have one comment, and that is that the author indicated it was difficult, or some people found it difficult, to tell the difference between Dickie and Dwayne. I have to seriously disagree. With all due respect to Dickie, Dwayne was infinitely a far better guitar player and an improviser than Dickie was. Anybody that plays the guitar for any length of time can tell you in a heartbeat that it was Dwayne rather than Dickie playing a solo. So my only comment on Tom Brislane, be interested to hear if you have a counter comment. Gail Gand. I just finished listening to your Allman Brothers program. My brother is a blues guitarist, Gary Gand, and apparently when Dwayne Allman died, my brother was 15 and at that point was already an outstanding lead guitarist and blues guitarist. And he wrote a letter to the Allman Brothers trying to apply for the job of guitarist because they had lost Dwayne. I don't think he heard back from them. But I thought it was just kind of cute that that was his reaction when Dwayne Allman died, was to apply for his position, <laughs> try to get that job. gentlemen. I just heard your show on the Almond Brothers. My name is Wynn Gardner. I saw the Almond Brothers at the Fillmore East on March 12, 1971. I can't tell you what a profound impact the Almond Brothers had on my life back then. The Almond Brothers music was spiritually uplifting to me then, and it has continued to enrich my life to this day. Also, the Derek and the Domino's album that Dwayne had a large role in was an amazing comfort to me when I was going through a very, very bad period of my life. And I think it may be one of the reasons that I survived that period. Much for the show. Bye. No more messages. 
To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.